I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. We're in the height of summer, which is usually the time of year when us gardeners can be seen twiddling our green thumbs, wondering what we can do out there. The flowers are in full bloom, the seedlings have made their way outside, and our crops have filled our plates. But don't put your feet up just yet. There's still lots of gardening to be done. Whether it's some much-needed sprucing up, One of the instant ways to get your garden looking better, tidier, neater, sharper, is to sort your hedges out this month. Collecting seeds for planting later this year. It's really important that we all save our seeds so that we can protect the diversity of the plants that we work with. Or even thinking about how to make our garden better for the environment whether that's planting to absorb more water or that's more tolerant of water, or if that might be digging a small channel and making a shallow depression for your planting. It may not feel like it, but August is a great time to get preparing for the future, as well as enjoying our beautiful plots. I'm Catherine Potsides and welcome to Gardening with the RHS. My garden is looking fabulous right now. I'm really enjoying the big blue exploding firework flowers of the agapanthus and I'm enjoying watching the courgettes and tomatoes ripen on my plants. I can't wait to eat some of those. There's some lovely nerines about to come through which reminds me it's probably about time to order some bulbs for planting in autumn. Our advisor Lee Hunt is here to explain his top August tasks. Well, to start with, I think lots of us have got containers and we all set off seeds earlier in the year for things that are doing now really well. So lots of colour in pots. I've got things like calendula and antirrhinum and cosmos. All of those flower profusely, but then very quickly the flowers turn to seed heads. Those seed heads don't look particularly unattractive, but if we leave them on, all the energy will go into producing seed. It'll stop flowering. So the simple thing to do is just go out. Often I am just do this with thumb and finger, find back to a lower leaf, or sometimes you'll find a lower bud for another flower, and just pinch off to that leaf or bud. The flower then below will start to develop, and you'll get a next flush of flowers really very quickly. So if you carry on watering and feeding as well, that will keep the display going definitely well into September. Next tip, 
in the vegetable garden, we're starting to get lots of certain types of veg. So if you've ever grown courgettes, you will know that suddenly once they get into productive mode, I had three plants and last week 20 courgettes. And I know if I leave it more than a, a week, each individual little tiny courgette will be almost a marrow size the following week when I go back to the plot. So I try and harvest everything. Now, that can be the sort of bigger ones that I do end up treating more like marrows, or it can be the very little ones that have still got flowers on. I will still take those off. One of the instant ways to get your garden looking better, tidier, neater, sharper, is to sort your hedges out this month. They seem to come in two modes. There's the very neat, formal, crisp form, and there is the much more lumpy, bumpy, natural form. It's your choice what you're going for, but unless you want your hedge to get larger, trying to cut them back now to within a few millimetres of where they were cut last year will prevent them getting away. On to the next one. Well, in the house, of course, we're still busy growing our house plants, and at this time of year, they're often grown very strongly and vigorously. So it's to keep an eye on the watering as well. I'm finding the watering perhaps now is at the maximum where some things needing top up water two or three times a week. I'm also thinking about repotting because they're growing vigorously. Those roots are growing vigorously, which means if I knock them out, put them in a slightly bigger pot. Lots of plants will often come in about a nine to 12 centimetre pot. So I'm just looking something that's bigger enough again that I can get my fingers all down the side in the new pot and then I can feed the compost round without getting any air gaps as I push that compost into the sides. Back outside well a lot of things like lavender and rosemary have finished flowering if you look amongst their, where they flowered, often there's little shoots that didn't flower. These are perfect for taking cuttings from. There's lots of things where if you're thinking, oh, I'd like more of those, if you take the cuttings now, they'll be rooted in the next sort of month, six weeks. And by next spring, they'll be ready to go out in the garden. So it's worthwhile thinking ahead because this is going to give you more plants to fill out your garden for next year. On to the next thing. This is the time of year where obviously it's the tail end of summer and the garden will very quickly start to look very tired if things get very dry. We're all being water conscious because we know that there's been very little rain through the, the summer. But certain things that are going to flower into September, like asters, will still benefit from a little bit of water to keep them going. So if you start to see browning on the stems going up from the bottom where you get older leaves, that's a sign of stress. So those are the kind of things that we might focus a bit of water in at the base. A lot of people followed this year No Mo May, and No Mo May became kind of No Mo Summer because they were enjoying the wildflowers that turned up in their lawn. For those people who have either got meadows or have been having a go this year, it's now actually time to cut that long grass that you let grow as your meadow. It's to cut it down really quite tight. So initially you might want something like a strimmer or you can use a pair of hand shears if it's just a small patch. By cutting that top growth off and taking it away and composting, 
you will end up with a kind of brown patch with what look like little patches of soil in there but that's fine because all the wildflowers that you've had in your garden that seed will have already dropped in there and they will begin to take advantage of those patches and into September you'll get new little wildflowers coming so if you want to do that again for next year it should be even richer. In the greenhouse often this is the time of year where Certainly if you're not growing tomatoes, it might be quite empty. So if you can, get on and clean it now. Because if you're going to be bringing in lots of things like your tender perennials, whether that's things like your dahlias and your geraniums, your pelargoniums, then having a nice clean greenhouse to bring those in just means that you're getting ahead. Well, those are my top tips, but there are so many things I could have included that I kind of feel almost remiss for not getting in things like collecting seeds that you can save now for sowing next spring, green manures, which should go in really this month or early next. And there's all the hardy annuals that if you start to sow them towards the end of the month will flower so much earlier for you next spring. We all have to start somewhere and stop somewhere. And that's my collection for this month. Lee's thoughts on collecting seeds for storing and growing later is a great idea. I always try and collect some seeds from my poppy plants during the summer, often scattering them in bare patches of land I can find around the place or occasionally giving them away to friends. Now someone who's been putting Lee's advice into practice is permaculturist and social media gardening star Poppy Okocha. Poppy has recently been spending some time collecting her own seeds and she has some sound advice about how to start. I don't have a massive cupboard full of seeds, but what I do have is a sewing box. It's like this kind of large wooden trunk with different shelves in it and it's portable. So it's got a handle that I can carry it around with (laughs) and each shelf has a different type of plant area. So herbs on one shelf, flowers on another shelf. And I I quite like that because it's a sewing box for like needles and thread, but I'm using it for seed sewing. So that's quite, makes me giggle. (laughs) So I have fennel seeds from my granddad. I've got like giant poppy flowers from my grandma. I've got love in the mist from my grandma as well. I've got basil and carrots and radishes, all of that stuff. So seed saving for me has become more and more clear that it's so important. It's a massive part of our history with plants. So in terms of our growing history, seed saving has always been part of our interaction with the plants, which has meant that we've sort of witnessed the plants through all their stages, not just in their infancy. For example, when you grow leaves, you might not see the plant ever go to flower. So it's a really beautiful way to see the plant go all through all of its life stages which I think is quite a beautiful thing. You get to know the plant in a whole different way. It's also really important in terms of saving the genetics of plants because the diversity of the seed available is becoming more and more limited as seed selling is being dominated by large corporations. And the seed that they create is compatible with like high input gardening. So they require a lot of feed, a lot of water. They potentially even require a lot of chemical inputs. And so it's really important that we all save our seeds so that we can protect the diversity of the plants that we work with. It's also a really beautiful way for me personally to connect with my heritage because in the time of the slave trade, 
when people in Africa started to see what was happening with people being kidnapped from the coast, women started braiding seeds into their cornrows and their hair so that they could travel across the ocean with the seed. So there's a really beautiful connection emotionally to seed for lots of people because it kind of symbolises future hope in a way. Seed saving will have started at the birth of agriculture some 10,000 years ago because when we started to cultivate plants, obviously necessarily we had to start collecting the seed. Human relationship with saving seed is so ancient and actually until recently, anybody who grew a garden or grew a plant people were more accustomed to interacting with seed because they weren't the same massive companies. So growing plants became more of a kind of cyclical thing, like you'd plant your seed and then you'd follow the plant all the way through to save more seed and then plant it again. So you kind of almost have this relationship with a plant where you're growing like the great, 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 great grandchildren of a sunflower from like even maybe your grandparents' time, which is a really nice thing to think about. So most plants you can collect seed from, you would more likely be wanting to focus on plants which you can easily grow from seed rather than plants that you're more likely to grow from cuttings. So most vegetables that we grow are great for saving seed from any kind of leafy crops. Tomatoes are fantastic and it's really, really simple and easy to do. To do that, what you do is let them ripen on the vine. And then if you want to save the seed for the next season, then you can basically squish the seed out of the tomato into a cup of water and let that ferment for a couple of days. And that basically breaks down all the gel that coats the seed, which can stop germination and cause rotting. And once it's broken down and fermented for a couple of days, you then rinse off all the gunk really, really thoroughly and pass it through a sieve. And then you spread the tomato seeds out on a tray or something so that they're about one seed thick layer on the tray. And you leave them in the sun or somewhere where they can dry off nicely. And then you'll be good for next season. So when we save seed, it's really important that the seed is kept dry. That's really, really important because if they have any dampness and you get things like moulds and rot happening, it's also important to keep them cool. So cool, dry space is really great. Putting seeds into paper packets or fabric packets is fantastic because then they can breathe and you get air circulation and keeping them somewhere where it's not damp. So in like a nice, cool, dry cupboard is great. Seed collecting can be such a personal thing and it's such a beautiful gift to give someone I think and when you do begin seed saving you realize how much seed you get from one plant so when you harvest one tomato for seed you get tons of seed plenty to give away to friends and family so it's a really lovely sharing feeling because you've got so much to give and that's a really lovely thing to bring into the growing space. I loved hearing Poppy's thoughts on collecting seeds. Did you know that the seeds of some plants can survive for thousands of years? I didn't until hearing from one very well-informed plant lover. Welcome to Botany Corner. My name is Chris Thorogood and I'm a botanist at the University of Oxford Botanic Garden. And today I'm going to be talking about plant survival, the extremes of plant survival. 
Often when people compare animals and plants, they might think that animals are more interesting than plants, often because they move on our time scale and we think of plants as sort of sitting there and being a bit inanimate. And I love to tell people about these amazing plants that really turn the tables on animals, particularly in terms of their survival. If we think of seeds, what is a seed? Well, it's a sort of embryonic plant enclosed in a hard protective casing. And seeds are just extraordinary because they can be dormant for very, very long periods of time. So the oldest carbon dated seed that was grown into a, a viable plant was one called a Silene, which is like a campion. And um, we have campions in our gardens and there's a wildflower here in the British Isles. Um, but this particular one was an Arctic one called Silene stenophylla. And it grew in Siberia. And fruits of this plant were excavated from ancient squirrel burrows from about 30 or so metres beneath the permafrost. So this sort of sediment that has remained frozen to about minus seven for a long period of time. In fact, nearly 32,000 years and these seeds were still able to germinate. So this is a, a natural cryopreservation system where we can grow plants that grew many thousands of years ago, which I think is just extraordinary. So all plants and animals show a level of deterioration with age, but plants really are the masters of survival and, and have evolved all sorts of ways to circumvent this. And so if we think of plants, they have what we call undifferentiated tissue. So what I mean by that is, if I were to lose an arm, I wouldn't be able to grow a new one, of course. But for a plant, it has a what we call a modular plan. And this means that it can abandon certain bits of itself. So branches and leaves, for example, and then it can grow new ones. And so we can think of plants as having this continuous state of rejuvenation. And this is part of the answer to how plants can live for so long. And they really can. They really are the record breakers in um, the tree of life for how long they can live. So if we think of the Great Basin bristlecone pines, these are some trees that can live for over 5,000 years, which I just think is extraordinary. If you think what has happened um, during that passage of time and those trees have just stood there. Baobabs or baobabs in Africa, some of these can live for over 2,000, it's, it's believed. And even some of the pines that grow in the mountains of Greece and Italy, Heldrick's pine, they probably can live for over 1,000 years. So, so plants really are the masters of survival among all living things. We'll be hearing more from Dr. Chris Thurigood in his cosy corner of knowledge in future podcasts. While I agree with Chris when he says that plants are incredible at staying alive, I'm also aware that we sometimes need to give them a helping hand. And I'm keen to make sure we do this in a sustainable way. And I'm thinking about how we use water. This time of year usually sees me running back and forth, up and down the garden, watering can in hand, making sure my plants have had enough of the good stuff to keep them going. But it's important for the environment and for my sanity to try and reduce the amount of water we're using in the garden. I've swapped out some thirsty plants for some drought tolerant varieties in parts of my garden which get a lot of sun at this time of year. But there's plenty of other ways you can help to reduce water use in your garden. One way we can save water is by making a rain garden. What is this I hear you ask? Our advisors Nikki Barker and Jenny Bowden can explain it all. 
What is a rain garden? What do you understand by a rain garden? A rain garden is a way of designing, not necessarily your whole garden, but an area of your garden so that you can harvest as much rainwater as possible to use during drier spells, but also as a way of preventing flooding or patches that flood. So it doesn't have to be a massive construction. It can just be for a particular area. It's looking at permeable surfaces and also the type of plants that you use, the vegetation and and how to guide water so that you don't end up with particularly wet areas or particularly dry areas as well. And why are they important to have in people's gardens? And are they something that's easy to install? They can be easy to install if you do it on a small scale and they can be done on a much larger scale involving quite a lot of construction. But they're really important with our changing climate because particularly in urban areas, there was some severe flooding in 2008 and the government looked at the planning rules and changed them so that non-permeable surfaces in front gardens needed to have planning permission if they were over five square metres because they realised that people tarmacking and paving their drives was causing a lot of excess flooding and pollution. So it's quite important that we look at different ways of just that small area on a front garden, different ways of making sure we can put our car on it using gravel and permeable surfaces rather than something where the water has got nowhere to go. Have you had any experience with building one or visiting one? When I was teaching horticulture, the one that we used to use as a really good example was one in a community garden in London at Ashby Grove, because it was very simple but very effective. And it was just a gradient with a small rill, so a channel, down from the path by the building. So it's a water butt path. And then this little channel down to a shallow depression, probably in all only covered 10 square metres. But with this lovely planting where all of that excess water just went into the planting area and it was crocosmia and had grasses in it. So there was interest all year round, but it was very simple. It didn't require a huge amount of construction material. It was something that the community did together on really a shoestring, just involved some time, a water butt and the plants. It was really effective and it worked very well and it meant the rest of the garden was not flooded at different times of year. All the water was guided into that particular area. And when it comes to the plants, which is always the most exciting part, could you suggest some good plants in these situations where you get this part-time wetness followed by dryness it's it does sound quite difficult to plant for but I think there are things that will work well there what do you think would work well I think and certainly sort of around the back of my greenhouse I use Japanese anemones alcamilla actia the purple leafed one is fantastic it will stand being really dry in that shrinking clay and wet where the excess water is running underneath the greenhouse Ferns, so you can use polystichum, dryopteris, they're excellent. Grasses, Carex Evergold, the curly juncus, that's really good as well. And there's lots of shrubs that you can use as well, isn't there? You can use cornus, most viburnums will tolerate 
but sort of quite a wide range of wet and dry. Sambucus, the black lace, again, it's your elderberry, but it will stand months of drought and it will sit in water as well. So that's another really good one to use if you want a background shrub. To sum up, what are your three top tips for setting a rain garden up? Firstly, install a water bottle too, because that will stop a lot of water flowing into overflowing gutters, overflowing drains, get a water bite in. But before you do anything, I think the second tip is watch where the water flows naturally in your garden and where it puddles first, because you don't want to start setting up a channel or a depression in the wrong place. So when it's raining heavily, watch what's happening to the water first and then you can look at where you might want to just change the gradient slightly, put in a little slope so that you can guide the water. So install a water butt, watch where the water goes and then start doing some work, whether that's planting to absorb more water or that's more tolerant of water or if that might be digging a small channel and making a shallow depression for your planting. Nikki Barker and Jenny Bowden. I'd love to see how you're gardening this month. So send us your pictures by tagging the RHS on social media. For more info on what we've talked about in this programme, head to rhs.org.uk forward slash podcast. In next week's show, we join Guy Barter and some like-minded individuals for his favourite topic, the allotment, as we celebrate National Allotment Week. I feel very strongly that allotments are the bee's knees, to be honest. It's that basic urge of, of mankind, isn't it, to actually get in the soil and grow your own and support yourself. It's great. <laughs> Until next time, it's goodbye from me, Catherine Potsides. Walking down the path in my garden, and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilise the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. 
and you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine and so much more. Terms and conditions apply. <laughs> 